And I want you to turn to that 18th chapter of 1 Kings. And I always explain on Sunday night that we use a worksheet and we study from God's Word verse by verse. Some theme or Bible book or about some person, some character. If you need a pink sheet, lift your hand. Everybody has one. That's a first. It's a miracle. Ron, put your hand down because we... All right, he got one. That's something else. Everybody has one. That's great. All right, let's look at chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 17. Follow along with me tonight, if you will. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, that's a good idea. At least they said that. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them and prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And it came about when midday was past that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. 
Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four water pitches with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel and that, I'm thy, that, I'm, and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Now look at this prayer. I mean, to, to read this prayer is to bow your head. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. I think that a chapter like the 18th chapter of 1 Kings deserves some kind of spectacular title like... Um, Winner take all, or the fight of the century, or showdown at high noon. All of these titles are fitting this chapter. And if you were gonna do a series on the great chapters of the Bible, you wouldn't wanna leave this one out because it is one of the few places in the entire Bible where there is a showdown between the God of heaven and the idols of men. I mean, it's a fight to the finish between the God of heaven and the idols of men, and the God of heaven wins out. Now, whenever you come to a, uh, you know, a high noon like this, a battle at, uh, at the OK Corral, fight to the finish, there's something that has to lead up to that. And I want us to look at that just in review again. You remember that this prophet of God stood before Ahab and speaking God's voice and God's word, he said that there will not be rain in all of Israel until I declare it so. And then God told this prophet to go hide himself by, by the brook of Kareth, and thus he did. And then he says in the 18th chapter, verse one, to go show yourself to Ahab. And so between the go hide yourself and the go show yourself, in between that, God is preparing this prophet. He sends him out by the brook of Kareth, and there he depended upon God to feed him with the ravens to drink by the water in the brook. And he learned to trust God for one day that brook dried up and there was no water to drink. And in the midst of that trial, which means, Kareth means to cut off or to cut down, he sent him to Zarephath, and there he was put in the fire. That's what that word means, to smelt or to refine. 
And God was preparing this prophet in the trials for this showdown on Carmel. God always does that. He's never late. And before he puts us into the thick of the battle, into the moment of truth, into the showdown, he gets us ready for it. And so sometimes the refining of life is for that one great moment of truth that comes in every life. One great moment of truth for Elijah was at Carmel. And verse 17 says that all of a sudden, you know, Ahab runs into Elijah and Elijah runs into Ahab. And Ahab says, is this you, you troubler of Israel? And, and, and the vernacular there, the word is, you snake in the grass. Uh, it may sound like that that's a kind of a made up term, but the Hebrew word for troubler is the word viper, serpent. And he said, you snake in hiding, you the one that has caused all the trouble in Israel. I mean, three years of it. And I'm sure that you can imagine what it was like there as Elijah stood before Ahab and the stench of death was everywhere for three years without water, all the livestock dying, many of the people starving to death, just a few wells that brought some water to the people, all the brooks were dried up. And in the midst of this stench of death, people dying all around and his kingdom cracking and coming. I mean, the wheels were falling off for this guy. And there was fire in his eyes when he saw the troubler of Israel, the snake in the grass, this viper. And Elijah stood to say to Ahab, uh, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the one that's caused all the problems because you've disobeyed God. Now look at chapter 18. We want to begin at verse 19 in the preparation for the proof. This great showdown, the moment of truth had come. And there are two groups that are assembled on Mount Carmel. There are those who are called the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah who ate at, at Jezebel's table. These prophets of, of, um, of pagan worship, these priests there numbering 850. And then there was another group just called in the Hebrew, the sons of Israel. And they were the people who were following these prophets of, of Baal and Asherah. These uh, people who were halting between two opinions. They were the people who were given birth by God in the loins of Abraham. But they were following the prophets of Baal and it was these people that Elijah wanted to win back. He wanted to win their heart back again. Did you hear his prayer? He said, oh God, I want you to answer with fire so that they will know that the God of Israel has won their heart back again. And it's these people whose heart had gone toward Baal that he's wanting to, to win. They're people in the midst, in the middle of indecision. How long halts you between two opinions? How long will you remain mediocre? How long are you going to straddle the fence? He wants these people to make a decision once and for all about Jesus, about God and their faith in him. And so he makes this proposition to them. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Give me two oxen and uh, you take one of the oxen and prepare it, put it on the altar and call on the name of your God. 
And we'll take the other oxen, cut it up, put it on our altar, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. Now, Elijah gave them the benefit of the doubt. He said, now the answer, the, the God who answers by fire is the God we will all worship. He gave them the benefit of the doubt because Baal was the God of fire. He was the God of the sun. In other words, he's saying, least your God of fire, the God of the sun ought to be able to start a fire. And so they start um, in the morning early to call upon Baal. And, and this is their, um, uh, this is the scenario. Oh, Baal, hear us an answer. And nothing happened. And the scripture says that they begin to leap about. They begin to jump up and down and, and uh, shout and, and moan and, and go around the altar. Now, if you don't think the Bible is, is filled with humor, you, you just need to take a look here. About noon, old Elijah is leaning over there against that tree, picking his teeth. And he looks at, you know, and he's against to mock these people. And he's saying, now, perhaps your God is in deep meditation somewhere. Cry a little louder. And, and he said, perhaps he's gone aside. Now, um, I don't know how to say that except just the way it says that. Now, Lee's laughing over there because it's the only place in the Bible, it's one of the few places in the Bible where the Hebrew construction says, perhaps he's gone to the bathroom. I mean, literally say that. I don't know how to say it. And the living Bible says it in more crude terms than that. I mean, here's old Elijah leaning up against this tree and he's mocking their God. Call a little louder. He's a God, the fault may, must be your, your fault. You need, to, you need to shout a little louder. And so the frenzy begins to develop. Edershine has a statement about this. Listen to what he says. He said, first the voice rose in vexed cries and they danced around the altar in a kind of a swinging motion to and fro like the Aggies do. Uh, strop, you know, and they sing the Aggie hymn. They're swinging to and fro, howling and uh, louder and louder. And then they danced uh, more frantically, whirling about, said Edershine, in, in this uh, uh, Baal festival with deep sweeping motions and their hair swept the ground. And they began to scream louder and louder to Baal. And as they moved in the second and third acts of the Baal feast, they bit their arms and they cut themselves with swords. And as the frenzy reached the highest peak, they begin to moan and utter in incoherent broken sentences and cut themselves till the blood gushed out. What a scene as they cried for their God to answer. When you have a God who's deaf, no matter how, bad you, how loud you scream, you're not going to get through to him. Can your God hear you when you pray? And when that had finally reached its pinnacle, Elijah stood up and he, all along he steps up and verse 30, and I want you to hang on to that statement. And Elijah repaired the altars of God. Now, I just want to pause just a minute and kind of parenthetically make note of the fact that the fire of God never falls until the altars are repaired. 
Sometimes we have to go and repair those altars that have been broken down, broken uh, relationships have got to be repaired before God can fall in fire. And sometimes it happens, it's, it's an altar that's been broken down in the home and there has to be some reconciliation in the repairing of the altars at home. And sometimes it's just repairing the altars that exist in your own life, the devotional altars and the prayer altars that have been broken down, have been neglected. When you repair those altars, fire falls. And the fire fell after the whole offering was placed upon the altar. If there's anything held back, if, if there is any surrender that's yet to be made, the fire of God will not fall upon your life. And the fire fell when the counterfeit altars, counterfeit sacrifices were excluded. In other words, when he filled the trenches with water and soaked the altar with water, he left no room for any trickery. There wasn't gonna be somebody who would have a little spark underneath there to bring the fire. I mean, all of the counterfeit had to be excluded. All of the sham and the hypocrisy of your life has to go and mine before the fire of God can fall. And then came this marvelous prayer of, of Elijah. And the scripture says that the fire of God fell and consumed the altar and the, and the offering and the stones and the dust and licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw that, the people began to shout, and the Lord, He is God. Jehovah, He is God. That's what always happens when the fire falls. The people realize that Jehovah is God. I've heard that story often, and you have too, about the church was burning down and some people were standing around watching as the firemen trying to put out the fire and the pastor was standing there, he saw one of the guys, he wanted, you know, brother so-and-so, I hadn't seen you around here at the church in a long time. Brother so-and-so said, yeah, well, I never had been a, there hadn't been a fire in the church in a long time either. When the fire falls, the people's indecision begins to vanish. And then the Bible says that Elijah took command and he, he said, bring those prophets all together. And he took them out by the brook Kishon and he slew them. And you say, wasn't that pretty drastic that Elijah would kill those men, just murder them all? Not really. What would you think about a doctor who found a mass tumor in your stomach he came to you and said, well, there's a big tumor there and we need to take part of it out, remove part of it. He took it all out and they slew all the prophets of Baal and put them to death. And in that encounter between the idols of men and the God of heaven, the God of heaven won out. Now see four practical implications. I want you to get to these and we'll quit. Four practical lessons from this story. Number one, when we are sure, when we are sure 
that we're in the will of God, we are invincible. You ever notice that? When we are sure that we're in the will of God, we're invincible, unmovable. We may be out of a job, but we're invincible. We may be standing alone and all our peers may be against us, but we're invincible. When you're in the will of God, you're invincible. Now it wasn't, the equation was not 850 against one. The equation is 850 against one plus God, and that makes the difference. For if God is for you, who can be against you? He's invincible. Now, I don't know know whether you noticed it or not, but Elijah spoke eight times in these verses, and every time he spoke, he commanded. He was totally in charge. And he was all alone on Mount Carmel. No, he wasn't all alone. God was with him. And when God is with you, you can stand invincible. And he knew that. Now, sometimes we have opinions and sometimes we have convictions. And when we have convictions that this is God's will, nothing can move us. This week I've been dealing with a question in my own mind. And my prayer is, God, help me to discern if what I think is an opinion or a conviction. If it's a conviction, I'll stand by it to the very end. Number two. wrong as open idolatry. Divided allegiance is as wrong as open idolatry. If you, on the one hand, play church, and on the other hand, you you, you deal with the world, you might as well be a pagan. Divided allegiance is no different from open idolatry. And and so Jesus spoke to that church at Laodicea and he said, I would that you were hot or cold, one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. You nauseate me. Number three, in the final analysis, in the final analysis, our most effective tool is prayer. When it comes down to the moment of truth, our our, our finest weapon is prayer. Can you look back over this week and find 10 minutes that you've spent in real prayer? Now, I mentioned this morning, I left something out of my sermon and I feel duty bound, go ahead, I mean, I wrote it out. I had it in my notes. And since I had it in my notes, I feel bound to mention it. 
we say we really believe in prayer, but we really don't if we don't pray. Because we act upon what we believe. Um, even if what we believe is wrong, we'll act on it. For example, if somebody came through the back door of that church tonight and shouted, fire! I imagine this building would clear in about five seconds. And that might be a prank, a hoax, but we would act on it because we believed it. Now, if we believe something, we act on it. Subconsciously, we don't believe in prayer if we don't pray. Because we always act on what we believe. In the final analysis, the most effective tool we have in this encounter in life is prayer, but we don't believe that if we don't pray. Hudson Taylor said, the sun never rose on China for 40 years, but what God didn't find, my dad, in prayer. Oh, mercy. When I read that statement, I was so ashamed. For 40 years, the sun never rose on China, but what God found my father in prayer. Number four, never underestimate, never underestimate the power of one dedicated life. Now this whole chapter revolves around one dedicated life. Now this man was honed, it was refined for this moment out in Terath and Zarephath. And he came to Mount Carmel just refined and purified and committed to God. And he changed, he changed a nation, one man. Never underestimate the power of one dedicated life. Are you really committed to Christ? Was it, who was it, Dwight L. Moody? Or who was it that said, was it Dwight L. Moody? I, I decided that I would, I would see what God could do. How does that go with a dedicated life? Do you remember what I'm talking about? The world has yet to see a man That's right. The world has yet to see a man completely dedicated to Christ. Now, if one life totally dedicated to Christ, to God, could change a nation, just think what would happen if everybody walked out of this room tonight completely sold out to God in every way and infected somebody with Jesus tomorrow. Just think what impact that would have on the world. Now the question is this. Is the Lord God or is Baal if the Lord is God, then follow Him. If He be Baal, then follow Him. But follow one. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the impact of a dedicated life. And yet when we read the New Testament, we find Elijah's name there. And it says that he was a man of like passion, just like we are. Not an exception, an example. And I pray, O oh God, that there would be of us the desire to live a fully committed, dedicated life. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now we want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's call upon you, upon your life. There's some of us perhaps who would like to come to say, admit, confess, I'm, I need to be a Christian. I've never accepted Christ. I've just kind of played a game. I want to confess my sin. I want to admit my need, my lostness. And I want to receive God's gift of eternal life Christ purchased for me at Calvary. And I come by faith to claim, in Jesus' name, His gift. Or you might need to come tonight to say, I want to be the person that the world sees as a dedicated life. Or perhaps to join the church, because we feel that, that the church is God's group his instrument to touch the world. And we'll ask you to come. If God leads you to come, God wants you to come. I mean, it's the moment of truth. You come while we stand and sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. I grab a hold of somebody's warm hand there, sweaty palm, and we'll just have a little fellowship song here, and I just really feel like it, somebody needs to come other than the one who has come to say that I've neglected my prayer life and my devotional life in my own home because I've been so involved in things that really don't matter that much. She want to rededicate herself to that, repair the altar, that the God can answer, the God who is God can answer with fire.
Now there might be some others of you, and so we're just going to let you um, sing with us. And if God leads you to come, come quickly because we'll sing a couple of times and we're through. Let's lift it up. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel His mighty power and His grace. I can hear the brush of angels' wings. I see our heads who will lead our prayer who will dismiss us in prayer somebody lift up a prayer let her rip who will lead us in prayer Amen. Good night, everybody. God bless you. I hope this service has helped you understand more fully of the goodness of God. If you have any question about what I've talked about, or if you'd just like to talk to one of our counselors or myself, please call 924-3573, the number you see at the bottom of the screen, and consider yourself invited to our worship services each Sunday evening at 7 p.m., and Sunday morning at 1045. Call today because we'd like to hear from you.